People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Kelly Corrigan is our guest today on HealthGig. Kelly believes life's joys and meanings spring more from relationships than any adventure or solo achievement. Kelly Corrigan has written four New York Times bestselling memoirs in the last decade, earning her the title of the Poet Laureate of the Ordinary from the Huffington Post and the Voice of Generation from O Magazine. She's curious and funny and eager to go well past the superficial in every single conversation. In addition, Kelly hosts a podcast called Kelly Corrigan Wonders and a TV show that airs on PBS called Tell Me More with Kelly Corrigan. Kelly is an advocate for illiterate America, and we have worked with Kelly at the Barbara Bush Literacy Foundation, and to know her is to love her. So Kelly, it's so good to have you on Health Gig. Thanks. I'm so happy to be back together with you two ladies. I know. I know. We couldn't wait to have you on. So thank you for being here. I could do it every morning if you want. Okay. Perfect. (laughs) We have so much to catch up on and we love your newest book. We love all your books, but we love your newest book. Tell me more and would love to focus our conversation on that book today. But first, how are you? How are you doing? I think I might be in something of like an organized midlife crisis. Like I've lived in California for 29 years since I was 25 years old. My daughter's graduating from high school in a week and a half. And I am suddenly selling my home and moving to split time between Bozeman, Montana and New York City. I think this is a managed midlife crisis. That's a lot. I know. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. And it'll be fun to see what you're going to write about. You know, the other day I had a couple hours and and my husband said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to write. I'm going to try to capture what this feels like right now to be on the verge of an empty nest. You know, we in California are all feeling for Michael Lewis and Tabitha Soren, who's Mm. 18 year old was just killed in a car accident. That gruesome reminder of something that is always true every minute of every day is just in my peripheral vision at all times. Yeah. And it is amazing how that's happened. As you said, as we get a little bit older and as you talk about and our life kind of goes on and we have different experiences and that becomes such a reality. So sorry about their accident. Yeah. So Tell Me More is a book of essays about 12 phrases that you're working on or that you're saying more. And some of the things are hard to say and some of the things are easier, but there are things that you found that life requires. And what everyone loves about your books is that you write things that we all wrestle with in a very relatable way. Trisha and I were crying and laughing as we read your book. You've laid this book out like a handbook with the chapters of the phrases so you can literally turn to the chapter that speaks to you. And so what inspired you to write this book and to write it this way? You know, I was having this debate with my husband, Edward, over dinner one night about the difference between saying I'm sorry and saying I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And it was my contention, because I'm a woman, (laughs) that saying I was wrong is a much bigger statement, that there's like a, a humility that's baked into that, that's so powerful in terms of changing the trajectory of an argument. 
when you say I was wrong, what you're saying, I think is we actually do agree on how the world should be and how people should behave. And I stepped out of that for a second, but now I'm back in it. Our worldview is aligned. That was wrong. I will not do that again. That's just different from I'm sorry, because I'm sorry is so polluted. I mean, you're like four years old before you start rolling your eyes when you say I'm sorry, or you say I'm sorry like that, or you say I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. You know, like it's very, very hard to get the intonation of I'm sorry, right? Such that it really serves as the repair that it could. That got us going about what else? Like if you want to be an adult in the world and in real long-term relationships, you have got to be able to say, I was wrong. And then that got us going about like, what else do you have to be able to say? Like if meaningful connections to others is the number one driver of human happiness across time and culture, then how do you get meaningful connection and how do you sustain it? That dinner conversation started us down this road where for like, I'm going to say nine months, everywhere I was, I was listening for like, but then what did they say? Like, how did it switch from conflict to resolution? It does come down to the ability to say some words, some just like no, saying yes and saying I was wrong, saying good enough and saying, tell me more, which got the title. Having the humility to believe you don't know that much going in. You don't already know the person and you don't already know the facts of the situation and that you have some patience and some sense of discovery such that you want to dig in and dig in and dig in and maybe surface like the thing behind the thing behind the thing. That was what got us going on this is like, what do you have to be able to say to each other to be in happy, loving, long relationships? Mm -hmm. Trisha and I really believe that your book is such a gift because we are such believers in relationship health. In fact, that's where we're focused these days because the science behind having healthy relationships is so strong. It's unassailable. And you know, it's interesting. I have a podcast too. It's called Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I was just editing this episode with this great novelist named Mbolo Mbue. And she was talking about poverty in America versus poverty in Cameroon, where she grew up. And she said, poverty in America is so ruthless because you become anonymous. You become a drag on society. Poverty where she grew up, you still had family. People still knew your name. You still ate every day. You still had disposable time. She's like, here, even if you're working poor, you might be working from one job to the next job to the next job, or you might be really destitute and be in a place where nobody even knows your name anymore. What she was getting at was what you just said, which is that relationships are the distinguishing feature of a good life and a bad life, not money and not power relationships first. Yeah. 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 I think you're lucky in life when you can have that kind of deep relationship to go through the ups and downs with. Mm -hmm. But also too, is it's going to create that healthier, happier life and healthier kind of for real. Cause do you know that 80 year study? from Harvard that's come out to say, it just states it clearly. People are healthier. They'd have lower blood pressure, right? They don't have as much diabetes. Their inflammation isn't as high if they have healthy relationships. And it doesn't have to be a ton, right? It can be a handful of people or one or two, but it makes a huge difference in their physical health. I think a really interesting research that's come out is about weak ties, like the value of weak ties, which is to say like 
the person you buy your coffee from, and then the person you sit next to at the bus stop, and then the person you're waiting in line. When my kids were in school, when they were in K-12, we just wait around for those five or 10 minutes for the kids to like get their yayas out, get their book bag. And that little intersection with everyone in my town from three o'clock until 310 was like bolstering. There's all this great research that that kind of thing, which has been totally absent in the pandemic when we're right. pulled away right. from each other, is part of what leads to like a sense of community and well-being. Yes. It's like, yeah. hey, how are you, Dora? Yeah. Right. You know, even just these passing connections. Yeah. 100%. The other thing I was going to say was that my dad lived like the long, greatest life. He died almost when he was 85 in like three days. You know, I mean, it was oh. really, really fast and really beautiful. A thing I noticed about him is that he worked really long time. He retired when he was 69. And then he started coaching lacrosse, high school lacrosse. And those relationships... Like that was a life giving move for him to start coaching. When he died, when we went to his funeral, my mother, who is, just has a lot of surprises at first sleep, <laughs> had, had thought of this very lovely thing, which is she talked to John Beecher, the coach, and she said, I want you to put a box of jerseys in the back of the church at Villanova, that mm. big, huge chapel, it was like 700 people. And if you played, for him, I want you to put a jersey on top of your suit. Oh. And so then when my brother GT, who's also a lacrosse player, was on the altar giving one of the eulogies, he said, if you play lacrosse for my dad, like come up and stand behind me. And there's this semicircle behind the altar at Villanova that's really beautiful. And all of a sudden, a hundred men of all ages, because there were 16-year-olds who had played for him the year before, oh, and there yeah. were 30-year-olds. And they're all behind GT at the altar, like a funny choir. Oh, so beautiful. It was so incredible. And it seared in my memory. And so for four years now, I've been coaching lacrosse, even though I'm I'm a horrible athlete. I'm 25 pounds overweight. I rode the bench every day of Radnor High School. But I can hear and I can learn and I watch videos like for five minutes before practice to figure out how to teach them how to do things. But it's it's totally energizing. Like if you want to live a long, healthy life, start coaching. We love the way you loved your dad because I loved my dad that way. Trisha loved her dad when you said you loved him to absurdity. I know. Which I think is such a beautiful quote. And the stories in the book about Greeny you grew up in a really Catholic family and you talk about your parents were good Catholics. And for you, it was really a different experience. It wasn't quite so black and white. How do we wrap our arms around life's mysteries? One of the most important sentences that has ever been said to me in my life is life is a mystery to be lived. The padre at our wedding said it. And then my uncle Jimmy, my dad's older brother, who was just like picture Jimmy Stewart, like just the most charming, delightful man, said grace at the wedding reception. And he kind of patted his pocket and he said, what was it that the padre said? Here it is. Here it is. Life is a mystery to be lived. He said, I never heard anything so true. And I'm an old guy. (laughs) And I think the reminder that the only way 
it goes down is like day by day and that you should be prepared to be surprised and like hold your plans loosely. It's definitely an acquired skill. Like it's not our nature. Our nature as evolved animals is to kind of pattern match and lock things down, fight or flight, friend or foe. Like that's the way you stay alive. And then as these incredible beings that we are now, I don't know that we've shaken that desire to categorize everything and sit in the mystery. But I do think that it's a more rewarding position to take. And I think humility is like a magic point of view. I think that's like keeps coming around for me in all these different ways. Like, don't be so sure. Don't be so sure you know what you should do next. Don't be so sure that you have all the information. Don't be so sure that you know everything there is to know about the person in front of you. Like how many times do people have to learn? I mean, me personally have to learn that I'm evaluating an interaction with just a sliver of information. I don't know what happened to you before we jumped on this Zoom. I don't know if you just found out that you have like a melanoma. I don't know if one of your kids just called and said they're getting divorced. Like, I don't know. And I don't know if your back hurts. You know, like there's things that we don't know and we're bumping up against each other and passing judgment. This is kind of an aside, but I did this thing on my Facebook page. I was talking about Ann Nador and I invited people to tell me something about their politics that doesn't make sense. Where they're like a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll, like a little bit conservative, Mm -hmm. a little bit liberal, because that's like this idea that everyone is shot through with consistency. And that's not true. Everyone has positions where they're a little more on one side of the aisle than the other, but we don't let people talk about that. We don't like absorb that the mystery of each of us. And we're not open to all the contradictions. Like we're just people. Mm. One of the things in your book, it's almost an ode to your friend, Liz. Yeah. And that related a lot to us because I don't know if you remember, but Trisha lost her husband, I think almost seven years ago, Trisha, in July. And actually Trisha's been <laughs> weeping in me too over your- That's what I tell you. Yeah. It's really hard for me. That I said to Dora, I won't be able to talk much today. <laughs> <laughs> She's being very quiet. Because my, um, my Danny died, then my dad died six months after that. And then within a year, my brother passed. So anyway- I'm going to let Dora take over now. (laughs) (laughs) But it was such a beautiful tribute to your friend and life after your friend. So can you tell us a little bit about that and why you included that in the book? You talk a lot about grief, which is, I think, essential to talk about. So Liz Lotz was married to my husband's best friend from business school, this guy, Andy Lotz. So we were like friend-in-laws She is a real receiver and I am a real presenter. And so for a whole lot of years, she would just be taking in everybody's stories, taking in the surroundings, like she's absorbing. And Andy and I are very similar in that we're storytellers and bigger personalities. And so I didn't really have a sense of her for a long time. I mean, I was very impressed by her because she was a woman who read the local newspaper, as well as the national newspaper. 
she made commitments to like local politics, to support people, to understand issues. I think she was like a really honest intellectual, like she could disagree with herself. And then she was just a really nice mother. There was a standard in their house of kindness and manners that we had lost the plot of pretty early in my house. Like, you know, our house is a little bit more like the Wild West in her house. Like you would never eat before everyone was seated. And they said like before every meal, like, thank you for the food before us and the love between us. It was very happy manners. It wasn't strict. It was peaceful and calm. So anyway, I really respected her. And then she got ovarian cancer. And then I really started to get to know her because I had just recently had breast cancer and done chemotherapy and done some surgeries and done some more chemotherapy and then finished. And then right after I finished, she got diagnosed and ovarian cancer is typically much more serious than many breast cancers. And in her case, it it was true. She's a super skinny person. The tumor they found was as big as a grapefruit. I don't even know how it fits. I don't know how it gets that little body of hers. And then we started really talking like in a way that I've probably never talked to anybody, to be honest. I mean, by the time it was really over, I never talked about the things that we talked about. Like I, at some point about two and a half weeks before she died, like I actually got to say, like, I will miss you so much. And I'm so grateful that I knew you. I don't think there were many people in her life who she was allowed to be dying with. Like most people wanted her to be fighting and to be searching for more trials and like, don't give up. But I had lost my dad the same year. There are signs like when they start draining your body of fluids, it's bad. She was so small. Like my dad weighed 133 pounds when he died. He was a 200 pound man who weighed 133 pounds. And with Liz, when we were there at Thanksgiving and she died December 12th, she was just skeletal. But the thing that I included in the book, the word or the sentence that you have to be able to say to be an adult is onward. And for a while, the sentence was, oh, well, because my cousin, Kathy, who lost her son, Aaron, when he was 19, after his freshman year in college in a car accident, and my friend who went through a really, really painful betrayal and divorce after 20 years, both had said to me, like, at some point you have to say, oh, well, that happened. Like, are you going to be in the world? Are you going to stay emotionally available in the world? Or are you just going to like wither? And that's the question. And so I had it as, oh, well, and then I just felt like it wasn't appropriate for me to call it that. And so we switched it to onward, which is just to say like horrible, horrible, unthinkable things happen. And at some point you have to start moving toward the future. And I don't know how long that point is. And I don't know how long it would take me to survive what Kathy survived and survive what my divorced friend survived and to survive what Andy survived. But that is a moment that is coming where the road diverges and you have to say, I'm going to love people again. And you know, it's interesting, Kathy, my cousin's daughter is having a baby this month. And we were talking about Michael Lewis's daughter and Tabitha Soren's daughter and their other two children. Kathy said to me, I can't tell you 
what it means to me that our family is going to grow because I was afraid that losing Aaron was so painful that my girls would never take the risk. They would never dare to get married or have a child. And I think she would have understood because it's so traumatic. She's like, but I'm just so happy. Like it didn't ruin them. Wow. Well, I think you're going to help so many people, Kelly, with your relatable discussions on these very big topics. Can you tell the story about your daughters and your dog? Oh, Doro. We're changing. We're shifting the vibe of the podcast here for a minute. So we had this dog. Her name was Hershey. She was totally adorable. She's 40 pounds. And there's a thing that some dogs do. All dog owners will know if you're listening. (laughs) You're not a dog owner. You're going to think this is disgusting, but it's really quite common. And there's nothing wrong with my dog. (laughs) And that is that dogs eat poop. Mm-hmm. There's another thing that happens, which is sometimes young children forget to flush the potty after all kinds of digestive events, shall we say. <laughs> and someone has forgotten to flush the potty in our house. And Hershey, are you putting it together in your head? <laughs> and Hershey went in there and got it. And it was all over the floor and I lost (laughs) my mind as one would when we're passing the children's bathroom and discovered poop on the floor. I just went bananas and I was convinced that I knew which one of them was to blame because one of them had forgotten (laughs) to flush more recently than the other. And I just went ballistic, like in a way that if there were cameras and it was on the internet, I would be in jail. I just was like beside myself. I was so, it was visceral. After I yelled at one of my kids and the other kid came to me and sobbing and she was like, it wasn't her, it was me. And then I had to go, I mean, I had to apologize anyway because I was so over the top, but then I had to apologize doubly because I was over the top at the wrong person. And what I said was, I was really wrong to talk to you that way. And honest to God, like if anyone in your life ever yells at you like that, don't take it. Never let any teacher, any coach, any boyfriend talk to you like that. And I won't talk to you like that again. Like, I don't know what just happened, but I kind of snapped and I'm back in my skin again. And that is unacceptable. Then I wrote a whole chapter about it and put it in a book. (laughs) (laughs) And I love your sort of conclusion about saying I was wrong. But when you said, you know, it's so important to say that you're wrong, but it doesn't mean you're bad when you say you're wrong. All parenting experts would say, like, be careful how you talk. You know, you're not a liar. You told a lie. You're not bad. You did something bad. Right. You had a bad moment. I think that's really fundamental. And I hope I did it most of the time when they were growing up, because I think that, I mean, the more I learn on my own podcast from talking to people about shame, the more dangerous I think that sword is. I mean, I think that is really destructive. And so when you're, you know, accidentally talking or unconsciously suggesting that your kid's a liar versus they told a lie. 
Like that's a really big distinction. And they could, I don't think every kid does, but certainly a kid could internalize that and think, and my parents think I'm a bad person. Right. And that takes forever to undo. Which was your favorite chapter to write? Or if you had to have one that stood alone, is there one that you would have? The very first one, it's like this. Uh It's an awfully handy thing to remember. And it takes a read to process it. But I just remember getting to the bottom of that and like that very last paragraph or two about that, that it's like having a heart and it's like this having a mind and it's like they come and they go, you know, they well and they break, they confound and resolve. Everything changes. All the good moods pass, all the bad right. moods pass, all the good days pass, all the bad days pass, all that is new becomes old. Like mm-hmm. there's just no stopping it to the extent that you can get that through your thick head. You can ride the waves more loosely, you know, in your body. You can just let the waves carry you around. Like literally I picture myself in water and just going with it. Yeah. Here we go. Here's a big one. Here's a little one. Here's a really cold patch of water. Here's like beautiful water, like laying on your back, looking at the sun, like feeling Mm -hmm. like there's not one thing wrong in the whole world water. Oh my God, something just touched my leg water. You begin the book that way. And then you end the book talking about your dad and love and how your dad was blind to your flaws. Like my dad was, he thought all of his kids were perfect. And I love his advice about good enough. And I loved when he said, trying again is all we can do. It's our greatest enabling power. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, first I have to say that years ago, I got asked to do a reading at the George and Barbara Bush Celebration of Reading. Mm-hmm. And it was stunning. I mean, my whole family was like, what? <laughs> and it was like Doris Crunch Goodwin and Coach K from Duke and Jeff Kinney right. did Diary of a Wimpy Kid. I mean, yeah. it was like a murderer's row. <laughs> and so we went to DC and you could bring one person like into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. <laughs> and I brought my dad and my husband sadly was having hip surgery right around then. So one of the things that you guys do on that weekend is that each of the readers, there's six of us, six writers get to bring one guest and we have lunch with president and Mrs. Bush. That's and so right. there were six people at one table and six people at the other. And your mom hosted on one side and your dad on the other. So I'm with your mom. And Jeff Kinney is like the kid in your math class that just makes you laugh the whole time. Like <laughs> into my ear, like Brad Thor was talking to your mom and asking, oh, yes. you know, like really serious stuff. <laughs> and Jeff Kinney's in my other ear, like making wisecracks. It was heaven. And I loved your mom like instantly. My dad is behind me with Coach K and Doris Kearns Goodwin in between those two sitting directly across from your dad. My dad's a lifetime Republican. So he's, he's in heaven. Lunch finishes and I hear this like, Ding, 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 ding. And I think, oh, your dad, the president, the host of this lunch must be about to make a toast (laughs) in my chair and who is standing up, but my dad. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you're, I don't think you're supposed to do it this way. Like, unless you're paying, like, I don't think you Also, like there's a president in the room. Like I, I'm pretty sure this is not the way this is supposed to go. I go red from head to toe and Jeff's eyebrows like hit his hairline. Like, oh my God. So then my dad just holds out his wine glass and says, 
I'm an old man and this is a lifetime high. Thank Aww. you very much. And sits down. How and kind. I mean, he is the hero. Your mother was like, he's a good man, Kelly. <laughs> and all of that whole rest of the night, like during sound check, they were like, oh, your father, your father. You'll get there. That was sort of his MO. Yeah, just a little further away than maybe you thought it was. But you get there. And that I really want so much to convey to my kids. And there's so many lies around these make or break points, like where you go to college, like that is the biggest <laughs> lie. And yet it's been disproven a thousand ways. You look at the Fortune 500, you look at income, you look at other success metrics, happiness metrics, like it does not track that people who go to the top 20 schools end up in the top 20 slots. They don't, that's not the way it is. And nobody believes it. And still you think there are kids who are like biting their nails to the nub, staying up until two, getting a second tutor, taking all their parents' money for special counselors and $20,000 and all the Rick Singer stuff is just so clear. (laughs) We have made no progress in debunking the lie. That would be the last thing on earth he would think. And that's what I want to say to my girls is, hey, guess what? I worked in nonprofits for 10 years and then I was a mommy. And then I was 40 years old with a book on the bestseller list. So like, you don't know what's around the next corner. Don't let anybody tell you that you missed your chance. Right. You miss your chance. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's from people who want to believe that their path is the only path. And that's just not true. I mean, I kept saying to my girls, like, listen, this college thing is going to cost a fortune. If you want the money, we're going to save for it and we're going to have it ready. If you want the money for something else, let us know, because I'm not really sure that I believe that that's the best use of several hundred thousand dollars in terms of your development and transition from an adolescent who lives with her parents to an adult. I think there's probably a lot better ways to do it. And I'm not being cheap. I just want to say, like, we should question the norm here Mm -hmm. because I believe that you can get wherever you want to go from where you are right now. And I don't believe that for everyone. I mean, I do believe that many, many people are born into such challenging circumstances where the things are stacked so high and there's so much cortisol in their little bodies, even at three and four and five years old, you can't get a fresh breath of air and they can't overcome like even the smallest things like asthma. You know, like there's things that can make a really young kid's life really hard for a really long time. I think that's actually the person who can gain the most from college. Yeah. And the pressure. And I loved when your dad said, you know, a couple of wins is okay. Yeah. You know, you only need a couple wins. You only need a couple wins. <laughs> and if every child could just have that attitude and every parent for their well, child. Well, the other thing is to know what game you're playing. I think about this all the time because I'm always evaluating my calendar. Like I'm always kind of interrogating or cross-examining my own choices. The game you're playing is to be happy. You are not playing the impress your neighbor game. Right. And if you are, you better switch games as fast as you can. You got to get out of that game. You can't win. Mm -hmm. And it's a stupid game. So Kelly, what's your next project? Do you have a book in the making? We know you have your TV show and your podcast, which are wonderful, but what's on the horizon? 
So I have a kid's book out there called Hello World. And then yes. next year we'll have another one out with my same illustrator, Stacey Ebert. And the book is called Don't Forget Yet. It's about believing in the future per our conversation. I have 10 shows coming out on PBS this fall. They'll start in October. It's called Tell Me More with Kelly Corrigan. And then the podcast continues and it's on some NPR stations. And then it's on weekly, wherever you listen to podcasts. And it's called Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Then someday my head will clear and I'll write another book. I had written like 220 pages of a book about my dad dying, about really what those three weeks were like. And I don't quite know how to finish it. And then I had written a hundred pages of a novel, which I was really into, but my agent was like, this is not good. This is not good writing. I was like, it's not God. I really like it. <laughs> I mean, I like it so much. I was like, I'm going to self-publish it or I'm going to publish it on medium because she's wrong. And then I showed it to this other woman who I had worked with on another book. And she was like, yeah, it's really not good. It's not good. <laughs> so I don't know why I can't write fiction yet, but I can't write fiction yet. As yeah. your dad says, you've had a couple wins yeah. and that's good. <laughs> Kelly, Trisha and I are so happy to reconnect with you yes. and to have you on the podcast. And we just hope we'll stay in touch and just Absolutely. wish you all the best and all the good luck in your moves and your new life in Montana and New York. And it sounds wonderful. We're going to get together for a glass of wine in DC the next time. Yes, Georgia. that would be great. Okay. Definitely. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. Bye, guys. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.